Welcome to episode 62 of Control the Controllables. Today we have Valerie Condos Fields. Valerie, for 29 years, was the head gymnastics coach at UCLA. She went into that job without even having any background in gymnastics. But you can see why when you listen to her, she has an incredible story. She's learned as she's gone. Her, her big philosophy that she's done TED Talks on is, is why winning doesn't always equal success. It's something that's very close to my heart. She, she shares fantastic stories, in, including a story from time she spent with the late Kobe Bryant. Her mentor was John Wooden, the famous basketball coach that many of you would have read his books. It really is a fascinating chat. It's unedited, it's raw, it's straight up, and and it's incredibly insightful. I urge you to listen. I urge you to pass this on. I urge you to get this one out far and wide because the, the message really is strong and it's something that myself and Valerie are incredibly, incredibly passionate about. And we want we want this word to be preached far and wide. Um, I'm not going to go on anymore because Valerie is the one we're here to listen to. I'm going to pass you over to Valerie Condosfield. So Valerie Condosfield, a big, big welcome to Control the Controllables. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. This is, this is amazing. It's been traditionally a tennis podcast and you've made your way into this tennis podcast. So you already are on a, on a real pedestal here, Valerie. So I'm excited to talk to you. For those listening, Valerie was the, the head women's gymnastics coach for 28 years at UCLA with seven national championships and was the coach of the century voted in the Pac-12, which is incredible. I'm an LSU, ex-LSU student, so I know how incredible that is. And last thing, just to introduce you, some of you might have seen the TED Talk, Why Winning Doesn't Always Equal Success, which I, I, I was looking the other day, I think there's three million or so people have watched it, Valerie. So first of all, how are you doing? How's things over in California? Thank you. Um, things in California are a bit dicey right now. We've got almost the entire state is on fire, sadly. So it just seems like the last six months have been this perfect storm of horrificness um, all over the world. Um, but with that being said, a big part of my day since we started uh, the quarantine has been to figure out how to make each day memorable and yep. how to find by how to live with joy yep. while you're still honoring those that are tremendously suffering. And so I think that's been a, a, an important learning curve for me these last few months. No, no, absolutely. I think possibly for all of us, I think when this does die down, it feels like it's one thing after another right now. But I think gratitude is something that I hope all of us will take from a, an, an understanding of, of, of what, we do, what we do have. And, and talking about that, 28 years at UCLA, you know, recently stopped, I believe, 12, 12 months ago. How, how's life looked post that? I guess that was your life. That's what you knew. So, so how have things been since? You know, it's interesting. I, 
every year I would have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our seniors. And because in the sport of gymnastics, there is no professional realm for the arena for them to go into after they graduate college. And so once they graduate, they are done mm. being a gymnast. And I mean, they can go into Soleil or performance arts like that, but their competitive career is over and they experience a huge identity crisis. Yep. And so every year um, I would have, as I said, one-on-one -on -one conversations with the seniors and I would explain to them, you know what, you weren't born a gymnast. You were born with a tremendous mind and a tremendously talented and, and strong body. You chose the sport of gymnastics. So now take all of what you have learned yeah. in this sport. Let's go do something else with it because yeah. your identity doesn't just stop. And then when I, <laughs> when I retired, I'd been at UCLA for 37 years um, as the assistant coach and then the head coach. And so my entire adult life was coaching at UCLA. And the week after I had retired, I was on an airplane and a woman said, what do you do for a living? And I said, if you had asked me that a week ago, I would have said head coach of the UCLA gymnastics team. Yeah. And I said, ow, I'm just me. Yeah. And she said, honey, lose the just. Me is enough. That's a nice, yeah. And it was so liberating to yeah, hear yeah. that. It's it, absolutely what, what a great thing to say because it is we and I think what a lot of us do a lot of us hide behind that identity and, and, right. and I think and I think we probably go through you know maybe I'm giving too much insight into what I'm like but I, I, damn the tennis coach damn the tennis player and all of a sudden to to be that is it can be quite scary but I think we all need to take that advice and so what have you been doing what have you been doing over the last 12 18 months you know, Dan, I, uh, I put out my TED Talk before I retired. Yeah. And I put the TED Talk out because, sadly, in this country, we went through the horrific sexual abuse scandal yeah. in the world. And a lot of the athletes that came forward and gave impact statements, I had coached at UCLA. And I remember being um, at the Olympics in London in 2012. And saying to the CEO of the Gymnastics Federation, why do we allow um, the Carolis to be so mentally and emotionally abusive? Hmm. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, because they win, Val. And I said, what cost? Yep. And then, so that started opening my eyes to this, this concept of the fact that we have all parents, coaches, leaders, we have all bought into this win at all cost culture yep. that we created. The, our kids didn't create it. We created it in business, in politics, in sport, in school, everywhere. And then I was having conversations with people about the gymnastics situation and they were saying, but we've been so successful. And I was like, no, we've won a lot. Yeah. But I would argue that we have not been successful when over yeah. 500 young women come forward um, with sexual abuse claims. And so at that point, I thought, you know what? I felt like I had a bigger calling. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to retire was to be able to speak about this topic because I really do feel globally that we are at an impasse and we have got to redefine 
success and winning. And how are you going to go about that? Or how have you started going about that? Well, <laughs> with a lot of conversation. Um, and I feel like change, significant change never happens without education. Yep. And so I feel the statistics that have come out, sadly, um, recently with the reports of depression and stress and anxiety and suicide amongst yep. our youth, are factual they're not just statistics that i'm making up and those reports of depression and stress and anxiety that our children are reporting they all say the same thing that the pressure to win and the pressure from parents and coaches is too much and so that's why you're getting more and more kids dropping out of sports before the age of 11 because yeah. it's just the pressure is too much and so as adults if we assume the responsibility of the the repercussion that comes from having a win at all cost philosophy if we assume if we assume that responsibility then we need to do something about it and i really do believe that we've got to redefine winning and success in the home it starts with parents yeah. because if you've got parents that you know claim that they really do care about the health and the mental health and well-being of their child, but they're willing to turn a blind eye to what an, a coach may be doing that can be classified as abuse, mm -hmm. um, then the child is, is torn and the child will not have a healthy understanding of what success looks and feels like. Yeah. And, do you, and do you think it's magnified also over the last 10 years when we start looking at social media, we start looking at, it's, if we look at it as parents, and I, I'm a parent of three young kids, and I'm well-educated, or pretty well-educated, I think, in this area, as, as someone who tries to preach it. However, you do feel that as a parent, whether it's your kid gets a B and the kid down the street gets an A, or, or your kid loses in the semi-final and the, the, the other kid makes the final and wins the tournament. So you start looking at what they're doing. And because social media is bringing that to the forefront, uneducated parents are probably going to feel that even stronger. So I guess my question is, social media, is that, is that magnifying the problem? Absolutely. Yeah. And I just read, and I just watched last night, The Social Dilemma. Uh, Have you watched that? It. No, it's on, it's on my list okay. to watch. Every human being that has a smartphone needs to watch this Netflix documentary on The Social Dilemma. And the people that are being interviewed are the geniuses behind the algorithms of okay. social media. And at the end of this, they all say they don't let their children go on social media. Um, but what those algorithms do to us and how they make us believe things about ourselves, quite often that are not true, yeah. good or bad. Um, it's all a process, it's all an algorithm and it all gets into your psyche yeah. and it works. And it's quite frightening, as a matter of yeah. fact. Yeah. Um, but, you know, before we got jumped on this podcast, you and I are speaking a little bit, Dan, and you were talking about having six criteria for success that yeah. a young tennis player needs to accomplish. Yeah. And I think that is, that is just so brilliant and so genius because you can't have 
winning as your only metrics of success. No. Otherwise, what is the point? You've lost the entire point of athletics. You've lost the entire purpose of why boys and girls should be in, in an activity like organized sports and athletics. If you're only focusing on that win, you've missed the whole point. Yeah. I, no, I couldn't agree more. And ultimately winning, winning a tennis match, winning a, actually gymnastics when I was at LSU used to infuriate me because I was really good friends with a lot of the girls. And it was always against Georgia. Yep. <laughs> and I was like, come on. How could this judge be giving her 0. 0.5, 0.5 more than, than my friend? You know, and it, and, it, and, it, and it really, because it was, winning was completely out of their control. Somebody's judging right. you. Somebody's, somebody's judging you on that. But even, I'm a big believer, we, we talk a lot about control, the controllables at the academy. And winning isn't a controllable. <laughs> you know, the, a, an emotion isn't a controllable. A thought that you have in your head isn't a controllable. So when we talk about defining our success measures, it's one of the things in your control because then, then you can actually go, okay, well, I didn't prepare well for today. That is something I can take accountability for. And, right. you know, because it's not about just pushing accountability somewhere else, you know, but I, I can have the intention to look in the in tennis terms to look for my forehand and look to play a, a, an aggressive game style. I can have that intention and that commitment, but I, what I can't do, ultimately I play you tomorrow. You might have a, an absolutely storming match and you know what? There's, there's nothing that I can do. So that my issue with it is which if people are being judged just on that, it's being judged on something out of their control. And, and, and then as, a, as an individual, that, that then becomes a harder, harder, harder thing to take and ultimately means you're, you're going to be completely up and down with emotion. Yeah. We've, um, you know, every year we would set our sights. Okay, the goal is to win the national championship. Yeah. Right? Ultimate goal there. Now let's forget about that. Yeah. And now let's break it down. And... Personally, I wanted to make sure that I left every single year without any regrets. Yep. And if I could do that, as you just said, you know, there's so much that is not in our control. If I could leave the national championship without any regrets, then I had a successful year. And looking back on my career, I mean, we've won some national championships by a quarter of a tenth. Yep. That's like I, you blink the wrong way, yep. right? And we've lost championships yeah. by that much. In fact, we, our last championship in 2018, we won by the smallest margin in history. And had we, the beauty of that, in fact, any of your listeners out there, go pull up on YouTube, Pang Pang Lee, uh, NCAA 2018 National Championship. And you will see the last rotation was balance beam. And we were in fourth place. Up until our last person that went, right. Peng Peng Lee was our last person. We were in fourth place. Like all we were, all we wanted to do was be able to walk out of the arena with no regrets. Yeah. And so Peng does this stellar routine and she dismounts and our entire team starts sobbing and hugging and crying they, with elation. They were so happy. Yeah. And the important part of this story is 
They did not know yeah. that we'd won. They were simply that ecstatic that they left it all on the floor. And then her score came up and it was a perfect 10. And here was, she was a sixth, sixth year uh, collegiate athlete because she'd had so many injuries. So it was her sixth year, it was the last rotation. She was the last person in the meet and she gets a 10 to finish her career. So fresh tears, fresh hugs. But once again, we like maybe we moved up to third. We didn't, none of that elation was because we'd won. That's the most important part of this. Completely. What a, what a, what a lovely story. And, and, and it's, it's exactly right. You know, if, if people can put, it, put, can put it all out there, and I guess my other side of my philosophy on this <clears throat> is anyone listening that is saying, yeah, but it is all about winning. It is all about winning. So let's, let's switch it on them a little bit and say, well, actually, if you want to win more... <laughs> Take care of your success measures, your processes, commit to them. And the comfort that you then get from that will actually allow you to perform with freedom. So, so, your, so your girl there going in, if, if she was going in there thinking the only success measure is getting a perfect 10, the only success measure is winning the, the national championships, she wouldn't be able to perform. She'd be, no. too, she'd be dealing with too many other demons Whereas her, she, because it's not in her control, but all the things in her control that you've drilled so well into her, for her to go and leave it out there on the floor, do everything right. that she possibly can, then that success has then actually led to her, her having the comfort to perform with freedom. And, and I yeah. think that's, that's the other beauty of it. And you know, the, the backing up on that story, the last event was Balance Beam. We were in fourth place, like I said. and. Um, I actually did my most brilliant coaching that event and I'm going to share with you how I did it. The first athlete goes up to beam and as coaches, I'm sure this is the same in the tennis world, but once you get to competition, your instruction is very short. It's like one word cue yep. that you know will resonate with them. And so the first girl up, um, I always used to tell her, just tap into your inner bitch and you'll yeah. be fine. And then yeah. she'd smile. And as I was going to give her her cue, she grabbed my hands, she looked me in the eye and she said, Miss Val, I got this. And my, I'm telling you, the brilliant part of my coaching was I shut up yeah, yeah. and I backed away. Yeah. And we had six athletes up, every single athlete did the same thing. And they hadn't planned this before. They were just so prepared, yeah. they were so ready. Yeah. And by the time we got to paying at the end, and I was gonna give her her cue, um, which was slow your dance down. She looked at me with the most beautiful smile on her face, grabbed my hands and said, Miss Val, this is the last routine I'm gonna do in my entire career. I am going to enjoy every moment. And I shut up and I backed away. Yep. Had I coached them, had my ego gotten involved, and had I thought, no, 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 they need me to say something to them, to remind them, for them to be successful, they would have played tight. Because like I said, we won by less than a half of a tenth. Yep. One of them would have played tight and we would not have won the championship. The reason why we won the championship was because they had prepared well and because they had ticked off all of these success measures, as you said, for them to be able to go out there and feel successful before they even competed. 
the, the, the listeners can't see it, but I want to just like raise my hand and just, and just shake it in the air right now because it's amazing. What, what, a, what, a, what a coaching tip for any coaches listening out there, you know, and it, I've been so fortunate. I think this is podcast number 60 in the last four months. <clears throat> so I've spent a lot of time talking to many brilliant people, Grand Slam champions, and they all talk about the enjoyment of the experience. They all, literally all of them, like every single one of them has talked about, did, do, you know, do you know what? I just really, we just, we're enjoying it. We just went through the experience through the day. They, were, they weren't talking about anything too technical, too tactical. They weren't talking about too much pressure. And, and that ability for us to really enjoy our experience. And I, I always got the, one of the most influential um, talks I ever listened to, I think it was a Steve Jobs. And it, and, and it was a few years ago and it really opened my eyes. And, I, and he said, none of us get out of here alive. And it, and, and it sounds a little bit, some people go, well, that's a bit dark, but actually, Let's enjoy it. Why, why? Why wouldn't we? We're not. We're not right. here forever. Let's let's enjoy it while, right. whilst we can. You know, I love that word you're using, joy and enjoy. Um, and I'm going to name drop big time right now. Great. Um, last year, I was very fortunate. I had a one-on-one -on -one, uh, meeting with Kobe Bryant, and we started talking because his daughters loved. There's a gymnastics movie that was made after one of my athletes called Full Out. It's on Netflix. It's a darling film and his daughters love it. And he starts talking about the joy that he saw in, in my athlete and the joy that he saw in me coaching. And we had about 20 minutes of this hour meeting that we had. And he just came to life. He started sitting on the end of his seat. His arms were open wide and he started talking about the importance of infusing joy into every process of whatever you're trying to achieve, especially through the struggles. And he said, you know, my joy came from getting up every morning at 4.30, putting in two practices before my teammates did, and then sh watching them show up for workout. And that pride, that sense of joy that I created within myself that nobody could take away from me, Yep. He said that joy is what I want to instill in the academy that he started, you know, the Mamba Academy. But um, we just both had this lovely conversation about you don't have to take the joy out of learning something really hard. And when you infuse joy into the process, you actually get a better result in the end. Thank you for sharing that story. And it's, a, it's another one on redefining what success looks like, isn't it? So, Valerie, I'm going to have to take you back a little bit. Okay. Probably about 38 years-ish. Uh -huh. um, before, before you started at UCLA. Now, my, my understanding is you didn't really have a whole lot to do with gymnastics. I had nothing to do with gymnastics. That was <laughs> so how, how, firstly, how did you decide to get into gymnastics? But secondly, UCLA is a pretty impressive university. What, why did they take a chance of bringing somebody in to their gymnastics team who had nothing to do with gymnastics? Well, the first part of the story is a life lesson that 
there because I was dancing professional. I was a ballet dancer. I've never done gymnastics in my life. I've never played organized sports in my life. And I had, I had wanted to go back to school. I wanted to go to college. And I was 22 years old. I was dancing professionally, had not gone to college yet. And um, I heard that UCLA needed a dance coach for their gymnastics team. And the part of the story that's important is that without any hesitation, I found out who the head coach was and I made the call and I made the ask. I told him my credentials. I said, I know you're looking for a choreographer, dance coach. And I'll never forget when he said, we don't have a salary to offer you, but I can give you a full scholarship if you've not gone to school. And I had not gone to school. And when I look back on my career there, 37 years, seven championships, all those things that you mentioned, none of that would have happened had I been too afraid to make the ask. And I remember when my mom said, you just called up the head coach and asked. And I'm like, the worst thing he could say is no. Yeah. I wouldn't take that personally. He doesn't even know me. Yeah. And so that was like the important part of the story. Then I graduated and I was going to go become a journalist. And the athletic director called me in her office and asked me to be the new head coach. And like you said, mind you, UCLA gymnastics was, they were strong. Like we finished in the top three almost every single year. Had not won the championship yet, but, but we were a really great team. Very formidable. And she asked me to be the head coach. And I literally laughed out loud. And I said, need I remind you, I do not know the first thing about gymnastics. And she looked at me and said, I trust you'll figure it out. And that's, all the instruction I got. So um, the, the sad part of the story, the arc of the story really is that I knew nothing. Mm. I could hire coaches that knew about gymnastics, but what I realized was I had no clue what a healthy culture in athletics should look like. And I, I didn't know what it should look like. I didn't know how about creating it. I knew nothing. And I, so I started out mimicking other badass coaches yeah. that were relentless, that were my way or the highway, that were dictators that led from their egos, that were sarcastic. Um, and I figured, literally, this is how sad this story is. I remember telling myself, well, I grew up on stage. I can act. I can act like a coach. Just act like a coach. So I did. We were horrible. Our team was horrible. I was horrible. And a few years later, they, the whole team asked me for a team meeting. And this is in the TED Talk, which I'm reiterating myself now to you, Dan. But the whole team asked me for a team meeting. And um, for two solid hours, okay, coaches out there, put yourself in my shoes here. For two solid hours, the gymnast gave example after yep. example of how my coaching was hurtful, bemeaning, belittling, harmful, the whole bit. And I had a huge wake-up call. But fair, so, fair, play, fair play to you for allowing that meeting to happen. Because I, I would imagine true dictatorship, President Trump would be an example. He, he isn't allowing anyone to have two hours with him to tell, to tell him about all of the things that he's been harmful towards, you know, and I would imagine there's a lot of coaches out there. So I think you also deserve a lot of credit for having that meeting 
And, and did that light switch go on? And, and then yeah. what did you do about it? It did. And, I, and, and as you're saying this, Dan, I remember being in that meeting and thinking, well, I need to, post I need to continue posturing as a head coach. So I'm the head coach. I'm the leader. My way to highway. And, and as I'm thinking this, I'm going, no, 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 no. That has not been working. You got to figure out something else. And so I listened to them. I thanked them. And then I did the most prudent thing that I could have done that set me off on my path. And that was to figure out my why. You know, Simon Sinek asks us all to figure out our why. And why was I going to coach? Why athletes? Why do you guys want to do sports? Coaches, why do you want to coach? Why? And quite honestly, a lot of the coaches that I know and, and the coach I used to be, you coach from your ego. Because it's a high, you know, you get to dictate all this stuff. And that wasn't my why. So my why was very, very clear to me that, and I believe without question that athletics is the greatest masterclass in learning really tough life lessons that one does not learn in the classroom. And every single boy and girl needs to be in athletics. And the the especially girls if you go on if you go on the women's sports foundation just go look up women's sports foundation they have an entire list of the benefits of sport not just activity and exercise but organized sport and how it benefits you throughout your entire life um and so literally i was my why became very clear i'm going to develop champions in life who are going to go out and make the world a better place and i'm going to the classroom for us is going to be the gym. So I'm going to build champions life through sport. And later on in my career, when people ask me what I did for a living, I'd say, you know what? I developed superheroes. That's what I do. Nice. We need you to become an ambassador at the Soto Tennis Academy. Let's do it. Because I'm it, it's literally, it is literally, it's, it's the philosophy that we have. It's the, you know, like I said to you before that we, we started the, the podcast, you articulate it so well, and I, and I urge people, there's two things that I urge. One, that you've mentioned about this, the social dilemma, Netflix, you know, and I think yeah. we, we, we've said it starts with education, so let's all open our minds to the education. But the second one, I urge people to listen to your TED Talk. It's, it's, it's incredibly articulate, and it's very well put, and it's also, it's very impactful. You know, and I've, I've shared it with a few of the parents at the academy already and a few of the players. And basically, you say in 15 minutes what I've been trying to say for 10 years. <laughs> so, so, so well done. I've got a lot to learn from you on it. But I, I, could, I couldn't agree more. You know, sport, sport is the greatest thing ever. It's the greatest. It's just incredible, the, the, the things that it teaches um it, it really is one thing actually i took from one of the talks that i listened i've i've been doing my research on you i think it was a maybe cbs i think it was a cbs conversation and you shared that one of the players had said you said to you that we want to be coached up not torn down that must have been quite a quite a heartfelt thing to hear from one of your one of your athletes yeah. No, absolutely. They said, "I want. We want to be coached up, not torn down. We want to be. We want to be supported, not suppressed and belittled." And it was like, and you know what? It wasn't. 
what was interesting in my case, it wasn't um, that I was such a hard ass. It was my sarcasm that was hurt. And I feel like in, with, in coaching, it's kind of like Groundhog Day. You know, you're trying to teach the same lessons over and over and over and over and over again. And so you get tired, your mind gets tired. And so you start throwing out these quips that we think are funny, but you know what? They're not funny. Yeah. And as my athletes have said to me, they said, you know, Miss Val, maybe if I showed up that day and I was feeling great and I got a lot of sleep and my body didn't hurt and the whole bit, maybe I could handle the sarcasm and let it roll off my back. But 99% of the time, that's not the case. Yeah. Something's going on. Even if I do show up feeling great, you know, I've got an exam that day or my parents had a fight or I fought with my boyfriend, whatever it is. And so I learned through those conversations with my athletes that where the psych, where I think the sarcasm is funny, there's really no place for it yeah. in coaching. Yeah. And how did you, because it's one thing, I guess, to recognize that, but how, how have you gone about, or how did you go about making that change so that it was able to have such an impact on, on all of these young athletes that were you were in charge of? Um, I flipped it all, you know, and started being, instead of being sarcastic and, and making jokes at their expense, I actually flipped it. I caught them in doing things right, doing things well. I became the ultimate optimist, you know, and as they're getting down on themselves for missing a balance beam routine or falling, I'm the one saying, okay, timeout, A, get over yourself. It's called athletics. It's hard. And B, let's start enumerating everything you did right. Like, let's look at that first, then we can figure out how to do something different, not to fall next time. But um, it was, it was the flip and it was, it's so great as a coach to be able to see your athlete make a mistake, come up to you like the dog with tail between the legs, feeling so remorseful. And when you give them a compliment or you point out what they did right, it's so beautiful to see their entire being light up then with a sense of pride yeah. and they're not going to be whipped for that one thing they did wrong. Yeah. And how, how was that received with parents? So I guess a lot of parents, especially at a, at a university like UCLA, winning, winning was what they were accustomed to. Winning was what they were going after for you to then flip and go into we value this these different success measures was that ever looked upon as fluffy was that ever did you ever have to take any from any heat from the parents on that i never took it from the parents because um i i believe in a lot of communication and yep. so i i communicate a lot with the parents and the student athletes but i got the fluffy comment a lot um, from other coaches, especially coaches in the club and the elite world, um, because I'm the type of person that I'm the type of coach where I believe the work is done during the week and then the competition is time to celebrate all your hard work. And so I learned also through my years of coaching that when I postured this intensity in coaching, it made our athletes more tense. So when I allowed myself to just be myself, and for me, whenever I hear music, I start dancing. Yeah. So when I would be dancing on the sidelines, 
it allowed them to be looser. Yep. And you know, any athlete at the D1 level, they don't have a problem in focusing. Yep. It's not like they were going to be dancing on the sideline and then lose their focus on beam. Um, but I got a funny story to tell you. So, uh, yeah, whatever. A few years ago, we finished fourth at the national championships, and I had this coach come up to me and say, "You know what? I really think you'd do a you'd do a lot better, and you'd you'd finish a lot higher if you didn't have so much fun on the competition floor." And I said, "Oh, okay." Um, well, who do you think had the most fun? And we all agreed, Peng Peng Lee. I'm like, well, she just got two tens. Like, okay, who else? Caitlin Ohashi. Oh, well, she just PR'd. Okay, but thank you for telling me that. The very next year, we have more fun, and we win the national championship. And this coach <laughs> comes up to me and goes, sticks out his head. He goes, I'm a jackass. You know what you're doing. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> and and also to all of those listening tennis coaches you've got to start dancing on the side of the court you do. This, is, this is this could be this could be why i fall down a little bit but this is is, is a tennis coach but i want to see it from you tennis coaches next exactly. time i see you <laughs> you know what exactly life is short people <laughs> and it, just think about it when you look at players that are in the zone they're not tight and stressed and like this maniacal vision. They are loose and relaxed. So if you as a coach are sitting in the stands or on the sidelines and you're tense and pacing and biting your nails, how are you supposed to be helping your athlete get into their zone? Yeah. It's counterintuitive and counterproductive. Yeah, yeah well, we, we have it. We've talked a lot about it, actually, coaches and coaches do discuss this a lot. The, the tone of voice, the way, even a, you know, obviously in, in tennis, you're not technically supposed to speak to the players when they're playing or you're not supposed to coach them, should I say, but you are, you're allowed to obviously say, come on, here we go, next shot. There's about 250 ways of saying, come on. Right. There's, there's there's so many ways, and you know we've had a bit of a laugh over the years with a couple of the coaches. Let's get the t we get the tone right, and, and and it absolutely is. If you get that, each player will have their own tone of how you say right. it, and and I think this is probably a bit of advice then for parents as well because exactly what you're saying. And if I share a really quick story, I I was fortunate enough to play at Wimbledon a couple of times. And one year we played against the Bryan brothers, who have obviously gone down as one of the greatest teams of all time. And quite a big crowd around the court. Now, let's say there was 2,000 people. 1,998 of them I couldn't care less about, but I could care, but care less about my parents. Because, and they were the most amazing parents. They never put pressure on me or needed pressure. You know, they taught me good values. It was about me. Often I felt they were cheering my opponent because, you know, and I struggled with that at first. But what I know that they were doing is they were trying to be fair and, and, and treat respect. However, without them putting pressure on me, I was so nervous because I wanted to make them proud so much. Now, why I tell that story is, as parents, you're already putting pressure on your kids just by being their parents. So if you now turn away in a certain way, 
if you put your head in your hands, if you say, come on, in, a, in, a, in an aggressive manner, the impact that that has on the athlete is absolutely monumental, you know, and, 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 or, the, or the way that you talk in the car before, and, you know, all, all of these different things. And it's a very, very, very difficult thing to do in any sport. But what would your advice be to, to parents, and not just for gymnastics, because you've already proven that you can go from outside gymnastics to being a superstar gymnastics coach so my goal is to now bring you into the tennis world and start you're gonna you're gonna produce some grand slam champions next. okay and this is so fun <laughs> I, I was on an interview yesterday and they said because i'm retired right and they said um would you ever coach again i said only if it was another sport <laughs> there, there you go it's set up so what's your advice to tennis parents given that tennis isn't your thing what would your advice be to tennis parents Okay, so my advice to tennis parents is um, to, to talk to your spouse. So you and your spouse are on the same page. What is success going to look like for our child? Because not everybody gets to be the Wimbledon champion. Yeah. And you don't want your child to be quitting the sport simply because the expectations are not realistic. So the first thing is sit down and figure out your why. Why do you want your child in sport and what does success look like? Yeah. Then have that conversation with your child yeah. and let them know that you're going to be there to support them. You're going to be there to listen to them. So if they want to come home and complain about the coach and this and that, and this and that, but you're not going to enable them to be victims. You're not going to enable them to have a pity party because sport is hard and you're not going to let them quit on a bad day. Yeah. That if they get to a point where they really, really don't want to do it anymore, they can quit on a good day, on their best day. When they just want a championship, they just want a match, they can quit that day. You don't let them quit on a bad day. Yeah. And after that, every question that you ask your child should be about the process, not about the result. So don't ask, did you win? How many points did you score? those types of things. Ask, what did you learn today? Like I always wanted our student athletes to get 1% better. How did you get 1% better? Even if that's the mental dialogue, the mental choreography, mental choreography you're telling yourself, what does that look like? How'd you get 1% better today? Did you help a teammate? Quite honestly, the most impressive part, even though there was a lot of impressive parts of the US Open, but how the two male tennis players and I was going to butcher their names so team and Zverev. what's the other guy Zverev. Yeah. yeah how when they came together and said I'm not just touching my racket this this match was too big and hugged each other and stayed in that embrace yeah. for a moment that was true sportsmanship yeah anyway so parents you put as, as Dan said you put so much pressure on your children without even knowing it. Kids want to please their parents. And so you need to be the advocate and you need to, what I think is important, like I've done with our grandchildren is, we set a safe space. So when do you want to talk about the match? When do you want to talk about tennis? Because kids don't want to talk about it on the car ride home. When you pick them up, that's the, when they say they decide to quit a sport, Nine times out of 10, they decide on the car ride home because the parents have them sequestered in this little metal box and they just hammer them 
with all these questions. So have a safe space when you want to talk about it. Because you know what? We got to talk about your grades and we have to talk about your sport. Yeah. When you want to talk about it and for how long? Not at the dinner table or at the dinner table? You know, when is that? Um, on the phone, how long? You know, the first three, three minutes you want to talk about tennis and let's talk about something else. But there is this whole movement out there that the professional athletes have started. I think it was LeBron James with Nike. I am more than an athlete. And children want to be valued as more than just the score. I don't need to say anything else. That's it. You've said it. It's, it's brilliant. Great, great advice. I know the bit that I'm going to be, or one of the bits I'm going to be cutting out, Valerie. It's brilliant. And your, your greatest experience at UCLA, what was um, that? My greatest experience at UCLA, I mean, there was obviously so many. I was very fortunate. Um, I don't know how many of you in the UK know of, um, or in the tennis world know of John Wooden, the great yes. coach. John. Uh, he was actually my mentor. I was very, very close with him. So what I was able to glean from him um, before he passed was priceless. But I would have to say, like, one of the memories that comes back to me was the morning of 9-11. And it was the morning that our team was reporting for their first team meeting that day. And I had nothing. I did not know what I was going to tell them. Because obviously everything I'd prepared for the first team meeting was now out the window. And I called Coach Wooden and I asked him for some advice. And he said, honey, just speak from your heart. I said, coach, I got nothing. I need more than that. Like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened on American soil. I need something to tell these student athletes. They're going to be looking to me for leadership. And he said, honey, speak from your heart. It's like, that's, I knew that was all I was going to get. So I go in this meeting and one of my student athletes says, Miss Val, I just, I can't ever imagine going in the gym and doing gymnastics again. It just seems so frivolous compared to what's going on in the world. Why would we ever do gymnastics again? And as Coach Wooden said, just listen to your heart. I knew the answer. And the answer was because we can. Because we live in a country that allows girls to play sports. Yep. That's why. And so guess what? Not only are we going to go do gymnastics again, but every single time you do gymnastics now, you're going to come at it with, with better intention, appreciation, and gratitude yeah. because you get to play gymnastics. Yeah. Which, is, which is very true, I think, of this time in 2020 as well. You know, I think it's given us that little reset. You know, and that's, I, I know we spoke to, the, to the, our players about that. We obviously on Zoom calls and lots of things during, it was a very hard lockdown in Spain. You know, we couldn't leave the house for nine weeks. And we kept saying, remember this moment. How badly do we all want to be outside on the tennis court, having fun, hitting fluffy yellow balls around in the, in the beautiful game that we love. And then the first week that was talked about every day and what we've tried to do, we get together, we do a circle, we call it our Friday circle, which shows the, the, the unity of the team. We do it every Friday, I've done it every Friday for 10 and a half years. And we talk about the values. We give players of the week awards based on, you know, and we celebrate people that have showcased the values of the academy throughout the week. 
but we always ask that question as well, you know, and, and try and keep putting into their mind, remember how you felt in lockdown. Remember, because perspective, I think, is, is such a massive, massive, massive thing. Um, I, I want right. to share, share, say something quickly. So success is a peace of mind, which is a direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing you made the effort to do your best, to become the best you are capable of becoming. One of my favorite ever quotes, to those listening, this is the coach John Wooden, who certainly has inspired me. I've read a lot of his books. Um, I know that he's a, he's a massive inspiration to many. The fact that you have been so close to him and, and had that, you know, can you just give us a little in, insight into what he's brought to you, how he's mentored you, how he's inspired you over the years? Well, you know, um, one thing I want to get back to with parents and that you were talking about Coach Wooden right now is um, <laughs> his, his definition, definition of success is a bit wordy, but that's because he was an English major. <laughs> so yeah. he loved So basically success is peace of mind and knowing you've done your best. Um, he, he crafted uh, the pyramid of success and there's 15 blocks in this pyramid. The top block is competitive greatness and that is being able to bring your best when your best is needed. So how do you get there? And that's all the other blocks. Um, the two cornerstones of the pyramid are industriousness, hard work, and enthusiasm. So effort and energy, basically. Um, and everything is built off of that. The important part of this story is Coach Wooden spent 15 years developing this pyramid, but he made the pyramid for, for parents. It wasn't designed for coaches or for players it was so parents would be able to have a gauge like you 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 were saying success measures i just love that phrase i'm gonna steal that yeah um i've got lots from you don't you worry (laughs) you you can have that i've taken lots from you already but so parents who have this this gauge of how to measure your child's success because it cannot be about winning. The winning is the byproduct of all these other things that go into these, these success building blocks. And um, coach, you know, he said when he was teaching English, he had a parent come up to him and the parent did not like the fact that his son got a B. And coach wouldn't said, but that was really a tremendous gift. He tried, he worked very hard in this class. And he earned a B. And the parent said, that's not good enough for my child. It may be good enough for neighbor, the neighbor's kid, but not mine. And so that's when Coach started off on this, designing this pyramid of success. Yeah. Um, the thing that I gleaned most from Coach Wooden was, and I was with him one-on-one sitting in his living room watching football, and where I would, would take him to speaking engagements where there were 10,000 people. and um, The thing that I marveled at was he was always the same. He never got, like he always told his players, balance is such an important word. Don't ever get too high. Don't get too low. And I used to hear, I heard that when he finished a game and he went out to dinner with his family, they never knew whether he won or lost because he left the game on the court. And I, when I started coaching, I remember getting out of my car for a competition or the national championships or something 
and like pumping myself up and saying, okay, it's showtime, here we go. And I would get this high. I would coach myself up to get this high. And it did, it served absolutely no purpose. In fact, it got in the way of me being able to think clearly and be there for my athletes. Um, and so from Coach Wooden, I got this sense of balance. Be true to yourself, know your moral, found, know what your moral foundation is, and be true to that in all circumstances. Well, what, a, what an incredible man, and, 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 and so, he, so he sounds, you know, and so he sounds from all the, all the books that he's, he's written, and he's certainly influenced a lot of people globally, you know, and what an incredible legacy that he's, that he's left. And in terms of you've then done the TED Talk, what's, and obviously we've talked around that a lot, and, and, and I, like I say, I urge people to listen to it. What's been the response from there? Because I guess that's put your, put your thoughts on a platform that's got it out there. You know, how have people responded in general to it and what's changed in your world since? Uh, people have responded very well to it. I've gotten a lot of speaking requests because of it, um, TV appearances because of it. And what you have to understand with the TED Talk is, is Daniel, you keep giving me all these kudos and pats on the back that I've said things better than you could. The, the most daunting part of a TED talk is every single word is approved by the curator. And so you have to take your thoughts, which start out to be about 30 minutes. Then you have to whittle them down to 12 minutes now. So yeah. TED talks, you 20 minutes. Now they're 12. Every word right. is approved or not. Then you have to memorize it. Yeah. There are no cards. There's nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever done was memorizing 12 minutes, which ended up being 15 minutes. Um, there's a part of the TED talk that to me is, is one of the most important parts for a coach or a parent. And that is um, a story I tell one of my student athletes, Kyla Ross. It was when the year, it was 2018, the year that the Larry Nassar uh, scandal broke. And I figured that I must have had some Larry Nassar survivors on our team, but I didn't know who they were. And Kyla was not one to, to speak much. She doesn't talk much. She came by my office and just started talking and talking and talking about school, boyfriend, family, whatever. And thankfully, I was mature enough in my coaching to once again tell myself to shut up and listen. And... I figured there was something that was on her mind. And if I was quiet enough and really listened, leaned in and listened, that it would come out. And she came forward and shared with me that she had been sexually abused by Larry Nassar. Yeah. And I was the first she told. So we talked about this. She was emphatic that she was not a victim. And I said, okay, well, can we can we agree that you were victimized? And she said, yeah. And so I spoke with her about that. Um, as she told me later, she, I helped her put words to the feelings that she'd been having. And I also chose to address not her situation, but the situation with our whole team. And it was in the middle of competition season. So everything you're taught as a coach, do not bring distractions in during competition season. I did the exact opposite. I brought this massive distraction in to a team meeting 
and we talked about it because the girls in the team, whether they were victims or not, they knew all the other girls that were coming forward with impact statements, including our assistant coach, Jordan Weber. So we talk about it. We wore teal ribbons in our hair for the remainder of the competition season because teal supports victims of sexual abuse. So we went on that year to win the national championship. And when we were done celebrating confetti, all of that, Kyla Ross came up to me and said, Miss Val, I want you to know that one of the reasons why we won was because you chose to address the elephant in the room. And she said, you helped me put words to my feelings to the point where I literally felt myself walk taller as the season went on. And she said, when I walked onto this championship floor, I felt invincible simply because I had been heard. That lesson for me was so important. And I share that every chance I can get because as leaders of young people, parents, coaches, we don't have to be right. It's more important to be compassionate and to listen. And to truly, truly listen, this is the fun part of this word. When you spell out listen and you rearrange the letters, it spells silent. So to truly listen, we have to silence our minds from the need to be right or to formulate what we wanna say next and just be still and listen, it's the greatest gift that you can give your child or the athlete that you're coaching. You've, you've, you've done another drop the mic moment. <laughs> you, you've, done a, you've done about five of them now where I feel like it should just be, that's, that's it. And, 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 I, and I really took that. I, it's, it's something that I have to reflect on myself in, in the mad world we live in we do, we listen to respond or we listen, we, we listen when we've already got our, our response ready to go. So it's just kind of like, yeah, yeah, you say what you need to say and I'll then, and, and it's, it's, it's powerful. Like I've just really listened to you there, like really listened. Cause I, I took your advice from, from the Ted talk and it's really, it is really powerful and it's, and it's a message. And, that, you know it is, it's powerful and it's a skill. Yeah. It's not you can just do. Yeah. You can't, it's hard to turn your mind off. We're not trained that way. We're trained for this fast paced world. We have to have these, you know, we're not trained to slow down. Yeah. And as you were mentioning with COVID and all that, I think that's one of the gifts that we've been given yeah. is an opportunity to slow down. Yeah. So how do we, Let's take, I mean, I was, a, I was a U.S. college student athlete. It's a pretty, it's a pretty manic world. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I remember turning up at LSU three weeks into the term because I had a, an issue with exams and, and I, I turned up and all of a sudden I'm in the gym at 6.30 in the morning and then I'm racing around a big campus to find my lectures rooms and go through that and then quickly it's a pretty manic world that, that, that you're living in college how did you get the time to to spend with how many, how many people were on your gymnastics team 20 so how did you get the time to truly listen to them to truly connect to them to to truly be the person that you you obviously were with them over the years 
one thing that I learned was uh, I, I always had an open door policy. So the, the athletes would just stop by, you know, when their classes were over. And I never, ever talked to them about gymnastics. I, gymnastics was safe for the gym because I wanted them to know that I valued them as a human being. So if they wanted to talk about gymnastics, we could do that, but that was going to be on them, not on me. Um, and then word would just get out. You know, the girls would say to their teammate, yeah, I just, just missed Val's office. You know, we had this great talk about whatever social media or Ted talks. And then the other ones would want to stop by my office. Um, so a, when you think about why I did that, it was to develop trust with our student athletes that I, I, I wanted them to trust me that I cared about them as whole human beings and not just a commodity to help me get another ring. Um, <clears throat> so that was one of the big ways. Se second of all, and you guys, I know Daniel and I are going to be hammering this and you've got to go watch Social Dilemma on Netflix. Mm -hmm. um, there are studies out there that say the average girl spends eight hours a day on the phone and the average amount of hours boys spend is six hours. And I went up to Caitlin Ohashi he, uh, her sophomore year and I said, do you think that this statistic is true? And she said, yeah. And I said, well, if you're going to be on your phone that much, why don't you use it for something good and listen to Ted talks? And she never, she didn't know what a Ted talk was. So I said, you can listen to anything you want. And she came in the next day, her whole world was blown wide open because she had spent four hours down the Ted talk rabbit hole, but listening to the effects of bullying, the effects of body shaming, a homeless situation. I mean, it's like, she finally like grew up overnight because instead of scrolling endlessly through social, she was actually using her phone for something good. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember where I was going with that. <laughs> but uh, let me let me pick it up then though if we're talking talking about girls and i think there is absolutely differences between girls and boys when it comes when it comes to sport and you know picking up on something you said earlier which i completely believe in as well that having sport at the forefront of of people's lives is so good for them educationally so good for for them in terms of what they're picking up from skills and you know all of all of these incredible things certainly in spain and i know it's slightly different in the us how how do we create more opportunities for girls in sport and then also how do we keep more girls in sport because if they're not in the game if they're not in the game whatever the game is for long enough, they are losing out on, on, on those skills and, and that education. Yeah, and I don't know the situation, as you said, in Spain or the UK or anywhere. With um, If I was living in one of those countries that did not have organized sports for, for girls, I would, as a parent, I would start them. I would start yeah. a of some of some type. Um, and the benefits are just... I mean, astronomical, like I said, go to the Women's Sports Foundation site and you'll just pull up all of these stats. But then to understand, as you said, girls are different than boys. Um, speaking about girls, the number one reason young girls like to be involved with sports is because they like to be with their friends. So they love the social aspect of it. And um, 
I think it's super important to organize a time during the warm-up where they can sit around and stretch and be social with each other. It, that time used to drive me nuts because I wanted every single moment. <laughs> but then I did my research and I read some studies and this and that. And that they have to have time to be able to just giggle and, and chat and be social with each other. And then talking about boys, I think, I think that we're at a time with now with boys that we previously, we used to train boys. We used to train compassion out of boys. We used to train empathy and emotion out of boys. It wasn't, you know, it was like, even when we'd say man up, like, what does that mean? It means yeah. become a robot and man up, you know, yeah. you can't have, but I just taught this class at UCLA. <clears throat> it was a graduate school class on transformative coaching and leadership. Every student in this class was either a fifth year student athlete or a graduate assistant coach. And 99% of them were male men. So the underlying book that we used for this whole class was Brene Brown's book, Dare to Lead. And it's all about vulnerability is the first step to curve, blah, blah, blah. So when we get through the end of the course and I did a debrief with all the students and I wanted to know, you know, what's something that you didn't think that you would learn. Every single student in that class said the same thing. They said, I've been in sports my whole life and I always felt that vulnerability and compassion were a, was a, was a weakness. Yeah. And I've now shifted my train of thought to realize it's a really strong human life skill versus mm -hmm. a week. Yeah. And so I feel that we're in an impasse with our boys mm -hmm. that we're actually going to have, we're going to produce better men yeah. by fortifying the whole human, yeah. the humanity of these boys and not coaching and training the humanity out of them. Yeah. And, and if we go, not to jump completely back into mental health again, but it is something very close to our heart on the podcast. The guests that we had on that, they talked, let's be honest, men, suicide is a bigger, is a bigger issue in men than it is in women. And, and I think when we're pushing men into being man up type attitude, what we're doing is, is pushing them to never talk about their emotions, their feelings, their, their thoughts, and, and the analogy that one of our guests used on the podcast, which I loved, was mental health is when, imagine you've got a glass of water and your glass just starts to fill and fill and fill and fill until the point that it starts to overflow. And that's when you become overwhelmed. And that's when you start having these really difficult internal experiences that can lead to depression and suicide thoughts and, and all of this. And I, and I guess... In, in that subject that you're talking about, by people talking a bit more about their emotions and being a bit more forthright with that, they're actually emptying bits of water out of their glass, you know, as, yeah. as they go, which we have to encourage, you know. I totally agree. And I didn't have a lot of male athletes, but I had, you know, a handful of male athletes at UCLA, football players mainly. I think there was one basketball player that just strolled by my office on their own because they'd heard, you know, some of my girls talking about going by Miss Val's office. Yeah. And they obviously, once again, they were there for a reason. So thankfully I shut up and listened and the tears would come and the yeah. stress 
and they would just bare their souls oh. to me, this person that they really didn't know. And when we got through, I just said, how do you feel? And they said, I feel so amazing. And I've never shared those feelings with anybody because it's not manly yeah. to say I'm feeling insecure or do I have insecurities. And um, then I asked, I had asked every single one of them. I said, is there anybody on the staff that you feel that you can speak to about these things? Um, and they said, no. And I mean, we had great human beings as coaches, as football coaches and basketball. They're amazing people, but it's just the culture that boys are brought up in. Yeah. And like you said, them coming by my office and just being able to talk, like Kyla Ross said, simply because she had been heard. Yeah. That's really all we, most of us want. We don't, and we don't even want to, you know, we don't want people to fix us. We just want to be heard. I could keep talking to you and keep asking you lots of questions. I have to be conscious of your time. I have, I have two more questions and then a very okay. quick fire. Okay. What's your, what's your hope now for the future? What, what's your why now for the future moving forward? My why now is to try to figure out how to help change our definition of success and winning for our children on any platform that will have me. So thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm going to get this far and wide because I think it's a, it's a, it's a why that absolutely I'm aligned to and it's something that I'm passionately going to be getting out there as well. So it's been an absolute pleasure. And what are you going to be talking about? Obviously, we've been connected through the Between the White Lines Summit that's coming up in, in, in a couple of weeks. And, you know, we'll be you know, having all of the details on how to get involved in that on this podcast, on the podcast notes. What will you be speaking about there in a few days' time? I am going to be speaking about my journey. How did a dancer choreographer become a successful coach in the world of athletics? And then I'm going to share with you a personal story that kind of wraps it all up. Um, and you may cry a little bit. That's okay. Bring the tissues. And uh, <clears throat> basically why I believe that, that athletics is one of the most important ingredients in our children's lives. And I was, I literally was in, in Washington, DC a few years ago, and they said, how do we change the culture of gymnastics? And I said, it's not about the culture of gymnastics. It has nothing to do with gymnastics. It has to do, we have to change the culture of athletics for our children. It starts in the home and it starts in the schools. And the, in the United States, we got to put athletics back in schools. It is as important as STEM. In fact, it's more important because when you study science, technology, engineering, and math, it doesn't kick in the dopamine and the endorphins, yeah. but athletics. So that's what we got to get to. And we got to get kids off of their phones. And so we all have to watch Social Dilemma and we're going to make a change. <laughs> I'm with you. You've got a follower. You've got a follower. Okay. All right. Make sure you don't miss it. Quick fire round, our tradition. Winning or success? Success. I'm going to take a risk here that you've played some tennis. Forehand or backhand? Forehand. Athlete or person? Person. College or pro? College. 
three reasons why college sport is so good. Team aspect. It rounds out your college career so you're not just sitting in a classroom the whole time. And it's the first time that you're an adult dealing with all of the things that come from being a part of a highly successful athletic program and a team. And you learn to be a part, you learn that the rewards of being a part of a team are greater than anything you could ever accomplish on your own. And one thing that you would tell your 21 year old self. To allow yourself to be, to allow myself to be more creative and to not worry about um, what it will look like to other people. Valerie, you have been an absolute star. Thank you so much for your time. Listeners, you. you have had a treat there and make sure you listen over and over and over to that again because that is going to be like our Bible over the next few years. That was, that was brilliant. Thank you, Valerie. And I look forward to listening to you in a couple of weeks. Thank you. I can't wait to come visit you. And Absolutely. This is going to be so much fun. I want, and, and anytime to choreograph a flash mob for you i'm there yeah, you're my you're my next head coach you don't okay. you don't you don't know it yet i'm putting the package together as we speak thank you very Sounds much great. thank you i appreciate Bye. it a massive thank you to valerie loved the chat learned so much myself and as i said at the end of the podcast You've all had a real treat there. You know, she really is one of a kind. She's someone who, in my opinion, is is right there, the top of a field in what she's doing. And for her to come and share that on, on the podcast is a big honor. So thank you, Valerie. Hope everyone enjoyed that. Um, if you are listening to this the day or the day after it's been published, we have published it a day early um, because the Between the White Lines Summit the sign-up is now. Uh, Valerie is one of the keynote speakers. She'll be talking, I believe, on Thursday, the 24th of September. That's the one you want to get signed up to. If you haven't had enough of my voice and you want to hear, hear from me and hear some of my philosophies, I'll be talking on Saturday. We've got 44 amazing, amazing speakers uh, in the podcast notes. You'll see how you can sign up for the summit it's great value. It's a great opportunity to really learn from some of these amazing people. And I hope you enjoy that. Uh, a big shout out to you all again for your continued support. Our next guest coming up later in the week is Heather Watson. And again, I can assure you that's going to be a fantastic conversation and we'll be releasing that on Saturday. If you're listening to this in advance of October 2020, then you'll be able to dip into Heather Watson's podcast already. Uh, that would have been released as well as many others. Don't forget those that are new to the podcast. We've got Jamie Murray, Judy Murray, Dan Evans, Mark Hilton, John Millman, Donald Young, Mike Dixon, Neil Harmon, Liam Brody, Noah Rubin, many, many more. So go and have a little look at the archive and, and keep enjoying this fantastic content that these people are bringing to us and these messages. For now, I'm Dan Kiernan. My co-host is John McGann. We are Control the Controllables.